The Stone Zone with legendary Republican strategist and political icon and pundit Roger Stone. Stone has served as a senior campaign aide to three Republican presidents. He is a New York Times bestselling author and a longtime friend and advisor of President Donald Roger Trump. Stone. As an outspoken libertarian, Stone has appeared on thousands of broadcasts, spoken at countless venues, and lectured before the prestigious Oxford Political Union and the Cambridge Union Society. Due to his four-plus decades in the political and cultural arena, Stone has become a pop culture icon. And now, here's your host, Roger Stone. The question that I know everybody is wondering, um, with all that you've gone through, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing fine. Uh, my wife, as uh, I think some of you know, uh, after the two-year ordeal of being hunted, uh, and pressured uh, by Special Counsel Robert Mueller, who charged me with non-existent crimes, basically fabricated crimes, in an effort to pressure me uh, to testify falsely against uh, my friend of 45 years, Donald Trump. Uh, I got to a very dark place. I was uh, depressed. I was angry. Uh, I was despondent. Uh, I had a feeling of helplessness. Uh, and then uh, a very young pastor, Randy Coggins, who I met in North Florida, contacted me to tell me that uh, Reverend Franklin Graham was going to be in the area of Florida where I live, in Boca Raton. Uh, as a much younger man, when I was working for Richard Nixon, I had the opportunity to actually meet uh, the great Billy Graham, drove him in a golf cart from the Hilton Hotel in Key Biscayne to President Nixon's compound uh, in Kibis game, and I still have to this day the Bible that Billy Graham signed for me. So uh, I jumped at the opportunity to meet Franklin Graham, uh, and I poured my heart out to him. He gave me about 20 minutes. He was very kind, uh, and I was thinking like a politician, you know, like a political operative. And I said, you know, uh, Reverend Graham, maybe you could put a good word in for me with the president, since my lawyers won't let me speak to him and and his lawyers won't let him uh, let him speak to me. And he said, well, I'll, I'll see what I can do, but let me give you a much better piece of advice. Turn your burden over to the Lord. Con confess your sins, uh, get right with Jesus, pledge to walk in his way. And I can just tell you, the Lord will lift you up, the Lord will deliver you from your persecutors. Uh, and I thought about that for a few moments. Uh, and then we went to a revival that he had just steps away. Uh, and he had reserve, reserved seats uh, for myself and Pastor Coggins, who was with me. Uh, and uh, he is, he's not his father. He's different than his father. Uh, but he's, no, he's equally dynamic. Uh, he's a great speaker. He's a great apostle for the Lord. Uh, and he came to the part uh, of his oration where he said, uh, I don't care whether your problems are uh, alcohol addiction or drug addiction or health problems or family problems or relation problems or, or financial problems, you need to turn your life over to the Lord. So those who want to live with our Heavenly Father for all eternity, stand up now, confess your sins and pledge to walk in His way. And at that moment, uh, as natural as can be, without being ashamed or embarrassed, without a moment of hesitation, I stood in this open field with 300 other Christians. I confessed my sins, and my life changed dramatically from that moment. Praise God. Now, uh, I know that folks at the New York Times and the Washington Post and other media elites mock me for that. They think it's some kind of act or some kind of pose or some kind of head fake. I'll be quite honest with you. I don't really care what they think. I only really care what he thinks. You can't fool God. You can't play games with God. Uh, I, I look, I'm, I'm a sinner, as we all are. Uh, I don't claim to be any kind of a saint or a savior or, or anything special other than a simple soldier in the army of God. Amen. Amen. Shortly uh, after the Lord answered my prayers uh, and President Donald Trump, seeing that I was being subjected to a completely politically motivated criminal indictment 
in the District of Columbia, uh, where I was put through a Soviet-style show trial, where very similar to what's happening to Donald Trump, I wasn't allowed to mount any of the defenses that I thought I should be allowed to mount. In other words, the underlying premise of the charges against me uh, said that the Democratic National Committee had been subjected to an online hack by Russian uh, intelligence, but the judge would not let me use expert testimony or forensic evidence to prove that that literally, not only never happened, the government has no evidence to the contrary. Uh, but uh, after the pardon, uh, my wife uh, of 37 years, uh, who had been my rock through this entire trial, who in those moments of doubt and pain that I had, uh, bucked me up and told me to, to keep the faith, to, to keep faith in the Lord, she was diagnosed with extremely uh, aggressive stage four cancer. Uh, I've talked about it here before at Sheridan Church, uh, and uh, it, has been, uh, it has been a struggle, uh, but I'm happy to tell you tonight, through the healing power of Jesus Christ, Hallelujah. she's now two and a half years cancer-free. Which, which proves that Jesus Christ can do anything. Amen. So to answer your question directly, the attacks continue. Uh, one of the most dangerous things out there is artificial intelligence. They can put words in your mouth of things that you never said. Get ready for a wave of it. You're going to see it constantly now. Uh, they will never stop attacking me because I will never stop fighting for the country. <laughs> Which brings up another question before we get into the topic of the night. How is President Trump doing with the last eight months being so chaotic? Uh, as I said earlier, I've known him for 45 years. He doesn't like it when I say that because he says it makes both of us sound old. <laughs> uh, but I must tell you, for a man who has this level of stress uh, and, the, and the extraordinary attacks on him, they're trying to lock him up for... 600 years if he were to be convicted on all of the outstanding 91 charges against him. Uh, he's amazingly uh, calm. He's amazingly resilient. He's amazingly determined. Uh, he is uh, amazingly um, optimistic uh, about victory, uh, extraordinarily confident. He's lost about 20 pounds. He looks better than he's looked in years. Uh, his mood is really excellent. That's because Donald Trump is a brawler. He is a fighter. This has nothing to do with him. If it had to do with Trump, he would just retire to a great life of playing golf and counting money. Uh, he, and I don't believe that they would be trying to destroy his life or trying to lock him up. Uh, he is running for one reason and one reason only. He loves this country, and he hates seeing what's being done to it. It's that simple. Yeah. So we'll transition to why you're here tonight. You've written a book, and uh, it's out in the lobby, and I would encourage everybody to grab this book. In fact, you're going to sign every book that is purchased tonight as well afterwards. But what got you intrigued? What kind of led you on the journey to write a book about who really killed uh, John F. Kennedy, because I know the most recent polling out there shows around 70% of Americans today do not believe the official uh, narrative of the Warren Commission. In fact, we'll take a poll right now. Who in here does not believe the Warren Commission? Just let me see. Yeah, so it's like 100% here, but, you know, it's <laughs> overall 70%. No, no, the, the Gallup poll continues to show... Uh, that, that north of 60% of the people don't believe the official narrative, which is that Lee Harvey Oswald, a disgruntled a Russian communist, acting alone, firing only three shots from behind, killed John F. Kennedy. And that's despite the fact that the mainstream media has pushed and pushed and pushed this narrative and has sought over time to silence anyone who, who dared to challenge the official narrative. Uh, what got me interested uh, in this subject overall, uh, in 1964, when I was 12 years old, 
Um, I, 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 I first uh, had my initial interest in politics. A woman who was a next door neighbor uh, where we lived uh, in Connecticut um, was very active in the Women's Republican Club. And she gave me a book called Conscience of a Conservative by Barry Goldwater. Uh, and I read this book and I was uh, immediately transfixed because uh, what Barry believed in is what I believed in, a strong national defense, low taxes, less regulation, peace through strength, uh, uh, privacy, uh, a constitution-based government. Now, before that, uh, prior to reading that book, I wanted to be an actor. Now I figured out that politics was show business for ugly people. <laughs> And uh, I became a, a Goldwater volunteer. Uh, I had a Goldwater sticker on my bicycle. I wore a Goldwater button to school. I wore the button three weeks after Barry lost. I was, uh, <laughs> uh, but when you're 12 years old, you, you're not that cognizant of the realities. But I read a book called uh, A Texan Looks at Linden uh, by J. Evitz Haley which outlined how epically corrupt Lyndon Johnson was. Uh, he was a lifelong segregationist, despite his late uh, conversion to be the civil rights president. Uh, he, was, uh, he was embroiled in massive scandals. So um, I already had a, an underlying distaste for Johnson. Uh, the Johnson law, which prevents you from talking politics in a church, was passed when he was in the Senate so that pastors in Texas could not criticize him when he was running for re-election, for example. So um, I, I had this underlying distrust of him, and I had a pretty good fix on his moral character. Uh, but I would come later, uh, having uh, worked uh, for Richard Nixon in 1968, but not really, and again in 1972, as the youngest member of his campaign staff, but I really didn't get to have uh, an intimate relationship with him, a close relationship with him, until his post-presidential years uh, when I was in New York and he was living in New York. Uh, and Nixon uh, was a man who was always very forward-looking. It was very hard to get him to be retrospective. It was very hard to get him to talk about the great events of his life, uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, Joe McCarthy, uh, the, uh, the being attacked by a communist mob uh, in Caracas, uh, the Nixon-Kennedy debates, uh, his relationship with John Kennedy, which was, which was surprisingly complex, except for when he had a few drinks. <laughs> uh, and uh, Nixon was uh, very, uh, very, very proud of his martini-making skills. Uh, he referred to them as silver bullets. Uh, and here's his recipe, very quickly. <laughs> Take a bottle of olives, you drain the juice. You fill it with water, you put the cap back on, you shake it vigorously, you drain the water. Now you fill the jar with dry vermouth and you put it in the refrigerator. You have beforehand taken two martini glasses, splash them with water and put them in the freezer. Now you take a cocktail shaker uh, and you put uh, a combination of cracked ice and cubed ice uh, in the cocktail shaker. It must be cracked and, uh, and, <laughs> uh, and, you, and you shake it very, very, very vigorously. And he would say, now, when you pour it, uh, if there are not tiny shards of ice on the surface of the martini, well, that means you effed it up. <laughs> uh, you then pour your martini into the chilled glass, you take one of the pre-marinated olives and you drop it into the martini. And I, I had my first one. I said, Mr. President, this is amazing. He said, yeah, I got the recipe from Winston Churchill. <laughs> so it was on one of these occasions, uh, which I was sitting with him. Uh, this was actually at his home in Saddle River, New Jersey. Uh, and I, we'd had a couple drinks. Uh, and he did get pretty loquacious uh, after he had a cocktail or two. And I said, uh, Mr. President, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, uh, who really killed John Kennedy? And he kind of stared into his glass and he said, well, the Warren Commission was the biggest goddamn hoax in American history. 
I said, I'm sorry, sir, I don't understand. And he kind of shivered and he said, let me put it to you this way. Lyndon and I both wanted to be president, but the difference was I wouldn't kill for it. Uh, and to me, that kind of told me what it was I wanted to know. Uh, and that is really what ultimately inspired me to do the research uh, to write this book, The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ. I took it to seven different publishers, all of whom told me that there would be no public interest whatsoever in this book, that nobody would ever buy it. Uh, uh, I found a publisher who would publish it. Uh, initially, it had a press run of uh, 5,000 books. It sold out like that, but it's a good thing because it had so many typographical errors in it uh, <laughs> that it gave us an opportunity to correct them. Uh, the next printing was 25,000. That also sold out relatively quickly. Then we printed another 50,000, and it has been actively in print since then. Uh, you do not want the hardback edition because the paperback edition not only has a much cooler cover that I designed myself, <laughs> but more importantly, has three additional chapters of things that I learned after I published the initial book, because I found that when you write a book like this, that's this controversial, that people contact you with information that you didn't have before, and then you have to be diligent about vetting it, confirming it, and I wrote three extra chapters that are at the end of the book. What I concluded was uh, that John F. Kennedy, uh, who I have revised my view of. I mean, as a Nixon man, uh, obviously uh, I wrote two books on Nixon about Watergate, essentially, about the Nixon presidency, and I did conclude that with the help of Lyndon Johnson, uh, the 1960 election was indeed stolen uh, from Richard Nixon. There was a, a very long, very detailed uh, examination and documentation of that in the New York Herald Tribune which cannot be found online. I had to dig around in the basement in a warehouse in New York where those records were kept on microfiche. Uh, but uh, my view of Kennedy has cha now changed very dramatically. First of all, John Kennedy was an ardent anti-communist. Yes. Uh, secondarily, he favored a massive defense buildup for America in the face of the communist threat. He favored a silver-backed dollar. Uh, he, uh, he also had a deep distrust of our intelligence agencies uh, because essentially they had lied to him about the Bay of Pigs invasion uh, and they had lied to him about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, let me stop there for a moment and explain that. The Cuban Missile Crisis uh, is glamorized today and we're told, as a movie about this, that John and Robert Kennedy, the Attorney General, and John Kennedy's closest advisor, faced down the Soviet dictator, Nikita Khrushchev, and forced him to remove his missiles uh, that had been planted uh, 90 miles off our shore in communist Cuba. What they didn't tell us, but which we now know from declassified documents, what the military and the intelligence agencies knew at the time was that the Kennedys made a secret deal with Khrushchev to remove our missiles, our NATO missiles from Turkey uh, and Italy and Greece, uh, changing the balance of power in the European theater. That was classified information for 40 years. Uh, it got him the deep distrust of the intelligence agencies uh, and the Pentagon. In the case of the Bay of Pigs inv invasion, uh, the Bay of Pigs invasion was planned under Dwight Eisenhower uh, in a working group headed by Vice President Richard Nixon. Uh, it was a top secret. At the 1960 debate, uh, the Central Intelligence Agency had briefed both Nixon and Kennedy about the invasion uh, with the understanding that neither one of them would discuss it publicly. In the debate, uh, to Richard Nixon's surprise, John Kennedy came at him, not from the left, but from the right, saying that the Eisenhower administration, of which Nixon was a part, was not doing enough to dislodge the communist threat 90 miles from our shore. And of course, Nixon could say nothing. 
So uh, this, uh, this bred the deep distrust of Richard Nixon for the Central Intelligence Agency. We'll come back to that later. But in the case of Kennedy, he approved a plan that included uh, air support for the men who were storming the beaches, uh, who were Cuban exiles, uh, and the entire point of the plan was plausible deniability. In other words, this was supposed to look like an indigenous Cuban uprising, uh, and there were supposed to be 29 Panamanian-flagged bombers flown by Cuban pilots flown out of Panama to provide air cover for the men storming the beaches. Unbeknownst to President Kennedy, uh, Charles Cable, the number two man at the CIA, who just happened to be the brother of Dallas Mayor Earl Cable, a close associate and crony of Lyndon Johnson, canceled that air power. And as the men stormed the beach and were being cut to ribbons by Fidel Castro's sharpshooters, the Joint Chiefs, including Curtis LeMay, went to John Kennedy and said, the only way to save the day is to send in the US Air Force. Kennedy refused, saying the whole precept of this plan was for it not to look like a US invasion. Uh, and uh, Kennedy famously said over this that he would smash the CIA uh, into a million pieces uh, and scatter them to the wind. So this explains the animus between the Central Intelligence Agency uh, and uh, John Kennedy. Uh, what I determined uh, in my research is that there was, uh, in fact, a domestic conspiracy, I hate that word, uh, to murder John F. Kennedy, uh, and that there were many uh, institutions and individuals involved, all of whom had a different motive. Uh, I've just told you the motive of the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, who thought that uh, Kennedy was soft on the Russians, uh, they, wanted a, they wanted to use Cuba to spark a war with the Russians. Uh, the Secret Service, uh, the FBI, uh, and the Central Intelligence Agency also became aware of the fact that President John F. Kennedy uh, had become addicted uh, to methamphetamine. He was being treated by a doctor named Dr. Max Jacobson uh, in New York, who was a uh, uh, treating all the beautiful people of the day, Aristotle Onassis, Frank Sinatra, Malia, uh, uh, Maria Calais, the opera singer, uh, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, Pablo Picasso, uh, Leonard Bernstein, the famous conductor, telling them all that what he was giving them was a proprietary blend of vitamins uh, and enzymes. And Kennedy was seeing Jacobson because of the horrific pain in his back. John Kennedy was an absolute World War II hero whose PT boat had been cut in half and who had swum for hours dragging a wounded colleague by a rope in his teeth uh, and had badly injured his back uh, in that incident. So um, they knew that Kennedy uh, was taking these treatments and of course they used it to rationalize uh, his murder. My God, the man's a drug addict. He could, he could give away the store uh, to Nikita Khrushchev. If you look at the manifest, the official document that tells you who was on the plane to Vienna uh, for the summit with Nikita Khrushchev, you will find the name of Dr. Max Jacobson. There's a terrific book on this entitled Dr. Feelgood. Organized crime uh, had a uh, grudge uh, against uh, John F. Kennedy uh, because John Kennedy's father, Ambassador Joseph Kennedy, uh, who was a bootlegger uh, and a partner of Frank Costello's uh, in that uh, illegal industry, uh, had gone to the mob in 1959, late 1959, uh, had gone to a conclave uh, of all the mafia chieftains, which was uh, called in Chicago by Sam Giancana, who headed the mob in Chicago. Uh, and all the family members were there. Uh, Santo Traficante, uh, the head of the mob in Florida. Carlos Marcello, who headed the mob uh, in Texas and Louisiana. Frank Costello, who headed the mob 
in New York, Camel Hump Humphreys, who headed uh, the mob in Las Vegas, Mickey Cohn, who headed the mob in Los Angeles, and uh, Ambassador Kennedy, who was a brash individual to say the least, said, my son is going to be president. I want, I'm not leaving here without $1 million, which in 1959 is an enormous amount of money. And uh, Humphreys of Las Vegas uh, and Mickey Cohn of LA got up and said, you can go to hell. We own Dick Nixon. We've been contributing to him since his career began. And they left. Gene Khanna got a broad agreement uh, and uh, $1 million went to the Kennedy campaign. Uh, but more precisely, Ambassador Kennedy agreed that under the Kennedy administration, under a new Justice Department, the deportation proceedings against Carlos Marcello and Santo Traficante, two of the most vicious gangsters of the time, uh, would be dropped. Uh, the Eisenhower administration, under Attorney General Herbert Brownell, was seeking to deport both of them, uh, and a deal was made. Of course, later, when uh, Robert Kennedy became Attorney General, Ambassador Joseph Kennedy uh, initially uh, sat aside while Robert Kennedy proceeded in those deportation hearings. Uh, and Gene Khanna went back to Ambassador Kennedy and said, we had a deal. Uh, and uh, Ambassador Kennedy said, well, the deal's changed. Uh, you guys own the Cal Neva Casino in Reno, Nevada, and I want a 50% interest in that property. Uh, and when I get that, well, then the deportation uh, proceedings against Marcello and Traficante will be dropped. So they crossed the mob. He double-crossed the mob. However, shortly thereafter, Ambassador Kennedy was felled by a debilitating stroke. Uh, he lost the ability to speak. He essentially became an invalid. Uh, he was no longer uh, able to enforce the deal. By the way, the interest in the casino was transferred to Morton Downey Sr., who was a famous Irish tenor and crony of uh, Ambassador Joseph B. Kennedy. So the mob was double-crossed, and that is their motive. More importantly, the mob also agreed uh, to twist arms uh, for John Kennedy, first in the West Virginia primary, uh, and then in the general election in the state of Texas, uh, as well as the state of Illinois, uh, and they felt entirely and completely double-crossed. That's their motive. Uh, the banks, uh, the Wall Street interests, were opposed to the silver-backed dollar that Kennedy was, associating, was insisting on, that was their motive. Uh, the, uh, the Texas oil boys were upset about Kennedy's announced plan to do away with the oil depletion allowance, which would have cost the Texas oil men like H.L. Hunt and Clint Murchison and others uh, millions and millions of dollars of additional taxes. That was uh, their motive. Uh, so what's key to understand here is that the man with the most uh, acute motive is Lyndon Johnson himself. So I, I will tell you in a moment how he has a unique relationship with each one of the others in this conspiracy, but Lyndon Johnson was under investigation uh, in two of the biggest scandals uh, in American political history, the Bobby Baker scandal. Baker was the uh, sergeant at arms at the US Senate. He was Lyndon Johnson's right-hand man. Uh, he was also his bag man. Uh, no major appropriation, particularly defense appropriations, passed the Senate in the 1950s without a payoff to LBJ. That was under active investigation by Senator John J. Williams, who was considered the conscience of the Senate. Uh, and then there was the Billy Sal Estes scandal. Billy Sal Estes was a flamboyant Texas wheeler dealer, uh, and he had received multi-million dollar agricultural uh, contracts from the federal government uh, at the behest of Lyndon Johnson was kicking back to Johnson. So Johnson knew that these investigations uh, were afoot. Uh, the Senate hearings into Bobby Baker actually opened on November 22, 1963. Uh, and uh, therefore, 
Johnson uh, had heard that Robert Kennedy, the Attorney General, had already begun telling people Johnson would be dropped from the 1964 ticket, he would be prosecuted, and he was headed to prison. In fact, uh, Drew Pearson, who, is, uh, who was at that time the most uh, influential syndicated columnist uh, of his day, had a column already written uh, that was supposed to publish on November 23rd, 1963, the day after the assassination, in which he accused Johnson of taking a massive bribe in return for delivering a defense contract to a General Dynamics. So Lyndon Johnson was the man staring into the abyss. It was kill or be killed from his point of view. So you have Texas Oil, CIA, the mob, and then Wall Street along with Lyndon Johnson. And so the question then becomes, how does this all kind of come together? And then why Dallas? Why that particular place? Well, and who did it? Well, Johnson has a unique relationship with everybody involved. So uh, as the majority leader of the Senate, Johnson takes the unusual step of appointing himself to the subcommittee of defense appropriations where the secret black box budgets for the CIA are maintained, and he's the paymaster for the CIA. The CIA has massive growth in their budget through the 1950s. Uh, additionally, Lyndon Johnson's uh, next door neighbor was FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover <laughs> knew that in 1964, he hit the mandatory retirement age and the Kennedys intended to put him out to pasture. Uh, that mandatory retirement could only be waived by the President of the United States. Uh, Lyndon Johnson's daughters uh, uh, both referred to J. Edgar Hoover as uh, Uncle Edgar. They had a very close relationship because Johnson had tripled the FBI budget uh, in the 50s. Uh, as far as the mob was concerned, Johnson was taking payoffs from Carlos Marcello to protect his illegal gambling operations in Dallas and Houston uh, and uh, San Antonio. The bag man there was a man named Jack Halfer. Uh, Halfer would later be uh, convicted of a minor crime. It's amazing. He got a full presidential pardon on November 23rd, 1963. Oh, wow. uh, the, uh, the banks uh, made it known to Johnson they were opposed to a silver-backed dollar. Uh, Kennedy was also fighting with the state of Israel. Israel was demanding to have nuclear weapons. Kennedy was opposed to their having nuclear weapons. Uh, after the murder of John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson agreed to Israel's uh, having the nuclear bomb, uh, another factor uh, in all of this. So Johnson, I argue, has a unique, uh, unique relationship with each one of them. Now, John Kennedy goes to Dallas uh, at the behest of Lyndon Johnson, who convinces him that there's a deep schism in the Texas Democratic Party between the progressive wing headed by Senator Ralph Yarborough, an arch enemy of LBJ's, uh, and Texas Governor John Connolly, uh, who would later become a Republican and serve as Secretary of the Treasury uh, in the Nixon administration. The man who, by the way, convinced Richard Nixon to take America off the gold standard. But that's another story for another day. Uh, the idea here was for Kennedy to be seen with Connolly uh, and Yarborough to bind up the divisions in the Democratic Party. But Kennedy, uh, who stayed in Fort Worth the night before, was supposed to drive from the airport uh, to the merchandise mart both of whom were outside the city of Dallas. So the purposes of going into downtown Dallas to drive outside of downtown Dallas never made any sense. Uh, it, was, it was Connolly, according to the book of Jerry Bruno, who was the chief advance man for uh, John F. Kennedy, who demanded the route through Dealey Plaza. Uh, in Dealey Plaza, they violate numerous uh, Secret Service protocols at no time is the presidential limousine supposed to come to a full stop. It does. 
uh, the buildings on both sides of the street are supposed to be uh, emptied, searched, and sealed. They most definitely were. They're supposed to be Secret Service agents in plain clothes in the crowd. There are not. There's supposed to be six motorcycle officers, three abreast on either side of the presidential limousine. There's one motorcycle officer he's told to, to ride behind the presidential limousine. Uh, we know that the Secret Service manual was obtained uh, by Lyndon Johnson uh, early in the first term. Uh, was given to Johnson's personal attorney, Ed Clark, who, uh, Barr McClellan, who was uh, in the same law firm, wrote a terrific book making the case that Clark is the man who planned the Kennedy assassination. Now, uh, so we established that it was Johnson who insisted on the route. Uh, just within the last several weeks, you've had two bombshell revelations. One, uh, a retired Secret Service agent named Paul Landis, who's 88 years old, came forward to say uh, that he actually found a bullet lodged in the back seat of the presidential limousine before it was hosed out, by the way, before it could be inspected. Uh, and he took it into Parkland Hospital uh, and put it on the stretcher next to John Kennedy. This essentially shatters the, the theory that Kennedy was hit strictly from behind by three bullets, all shot from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository Building. A nurse who's still alive, Phyllis Hill, uh, has also come forward to say that she saw Landis place the bullet there. The same bullet later shows up on Connolly's uh, stretcher, uh, and it is alleged that it is the bullet that went through John Kennedy, hit, hit Connolly, uh, and lodged first in Connolly's wrist, and then ultimately uh, in his thigh, and allegedly uh, was found on the stretcher. The bullet, by the way, is pristine. It does not appear to have been fired at all. So uh, also shocking, uh, and this is covered by the New York Times. This is not a, this is a very, got very wide public publicity recently. And then Paramount Pictures recently produced a documentary by the Parkland doctors, uh, only, almost all of whom are still alive, interestingly enough, uh, did involve some testimony from two of them who are deceased, but all of them say uh, that in Parkland Hospital, they saw bullet wounds in John Kennedy that were consistent with his being shot from both the front uh, and the back. Several of them testified that the bullet wound uh, in his throat uh, which is, which we are told is an exit wound from the rear, uh, was actually uh, a, uh, an entry wound from the front. But the doctors at, at Parkland uh, conduct a tracheotomy, so by the time John Kennedy's body gets to Bethesda, you can't determine whether that wound uh, was, uh, was a, uh, an entry wound or an exit wound. They also all record a blowout wound about the size of a grapefruit. Uh, in the back of John Kennedy's head. That is consistent uh, with being shot from the front. Uh, you're all familiar, I think, with the famous Zap Rudder film. Abraham Zap Rudder was a, just a private citizen, had a, uh, a movie camera, uh, was filming, actually caught the, the, uh, the shots that hit John Kennedy. Uh, only one uh, journalist was allowed to see that before they were locked away for 50 years. Uh, and that is Dan Rather of CBS, who says at the time that Kennedy's head snapped violently forward. We've now seen the film. His head snaps violently back, back and to the left, back and to the left. Why would Dan Rather lie about that? Why would the government sell that film to the Time Life Corporation, who locked it up for 50 years so nobody could see it? There's a second video called the Nix video, which was seized by the government. The Nix family is still in litigation trying to get a copy of that. Uh, it would tell us more that we don't know. Uh, I believe, based on my research, that there are multiple shooters. Uh, that explains Kennedy being shot from the front and the back. Now, that brings us to Lee Harvey Oswald. What does he say when he is uh, brought out in public? He says, I'm a patsy. I didn't shoot anyone. 
Uh, for those of you familiar with firearms, Oswald has no nitrate. There are no powder burns on his chest or his arms, according to the test conducted by the Dallas police. If he had fired a leaky $29 Italian World War II vintage carbine, he'd have been covered with, with, with uh, powder burns. There were none. Uh, he's exactly what he says he is. He's been maneuvered into place uh, to be the fall guy. Uh, I don't believe that he's even on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. The time sequence, uh, based on uh, the recording <coughs> from uh, a, a motorcycle officer from the Dallas Police Department who had left his microphone on, gives us the exact time sequence of the shots. Would have been impossible for Oswald, uh, who was not that great a marksman, he had the lowest rating from the Marine Corps, uh, to get off three bullets uh, that hit John Kennedy off from behind, hide the weapon, run down uh, from the sixth floor to the second floor where he was casually seen eating his lunch by a Dallas police officer minutes uh, after Kennedy had been shot. More importantly, a woman, I believe her name is Victoria Hill, uh, was on the wooden staircase uh, in the Texas School Book Depository building between floors six uh, and two, and she never sees, nor more importantly, does she hear Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, we also know that on the cardboard boxes, the so-called crow's nest, uh, are found the fingerprints of a man named Malcolm Mac Wallace. How do we know these are his fingerprints? Well, because in 1951, Mr. Wallace, who was an agriculture department employee, uh, hired at the behest of Lyndon Johnson, uh, is uh, convicted of first-degree murder uh, when he shot and killed a man in Dallas who was involved in a love triangle, triangle with Lyndon Johnson's sister uh, and was trying to blackmail Johnson with things that he had learned. Uh, it is uh, notable uh, that, uh, that Wallace goes to trial in Dallas. He's represented by John Kofer, the same lawyer who represented Lyndon Johnson in the disputed 1948 Senate election. Uh, and uh, he is convicted of first degree murder. And he's the only man in the history of the state of Texas to get a suspended sentence uh, for murder. Uh, he immediately goes to work for Chemco, uh, which was a defense contractor owned by D.H. Berg, an oil man who had another interesting property. He also owned the Texas School Book Depository <laughs> Building. Anybody else amazed at how much he knows? <laughs> I'm just, uh... Now, uh, no fewer than six people say that they see a man uh, in the window of the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository Building who meets the physical description of, of Mac Wallace. Uh, medium build, middle age. They all say a man wearing spectacles. They all describe that he was wearing a tan jacket and light colored pants. Of the five, three, probably of the six, three also say there was a dark complected man also seen uh, in, on the sixth floor who was either Hispanic or perhaps uh, Native American. That man uh, comes forward, his name is Loy Factor. Uh, he is an expert shot, he's a Native American who had been recruited by Mac Wallace at a country fair about two years previous where he saw some very fancy shooting. Factor uh, has said that he was the backup shooter, that if Wallace had the shakes or lost his nerve, he was to step in and shoot uh, some of the fatal shots. Uh, kind of proving the point, because a lot of people have questioned this, Factor describes this, the physical scene, but interestingly says because there was construction going on, there was a flat saw directly to the right of the window from which Kennedy was shot. There is no way for Factor to know that unless he was, of course, there. Uh, a man named James Carr, just a private citizen, uh, sees uh, a man meeting the description of Mac Wallace and a man meeting the description of Lloyd Factor run out of the Texas School Book Depository building minutes after Kennedy uh, is shot, uh, jump into a Nash Rambler, 
written, uh, driven by another dark-complected man and is driven away. There are no fewer than six attempts on Mr. Carr's life after he reports this uh, to the Dallas Police Department. Uh, there was also uh, a man who I had an opportunity to interview for my book. He passed away shortly afterwards, named James Tague. James Tague was a young auto dealer. Uh, he was a supporter of President Kennedy. Uh, he went down to Dealey Plaza to try to get a glimpse of his hero. The traffic was so bad that he parked and abandoned his car, uh, and he got close to Dealey Plaza. Uh, and uh, as uh, the motorcade went by, uh, a bullet hit the curb where, where he was standing, and a fleck of cement bounced up and grazed his che cheek, and he was actually bleeding. Uh, there was a da Dallas County Sheriff's officer saw this and said, I, we have to report this immediately, and took him to the Dallas Police Department. Tag was certain after he gave his report that they would contact him and ask him more about it, but he never heard another word. Then he saw on TV that the Warren Commission, uh, or more precisely the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover, who conducted their thorough investigation in all of seven days and reached the conclusion uh, that Lee Harvey Oswald had fired the three fatal shots off from behind, uh, and uh, uh, the Warren Commission was essentially put together uh, to rubber stamp uh, the results of Hoover's investigation. So Tague uh, was kind of perplexed. He went back to the spot where this had happened and he noted that where the bullet had hit the cement curb had been entirely patched. There was no evidence of the bullet. He wrote this in his own book. Uh, and um, he was in a bar. Uh, he was, I think he had a few, and he was telling his story. Uh, and a reporter named James uh, Lair from the McNear Lair Report uh, happened to be there, he was then working for the AP, later became a famous television reporter. Uh, and the next day, this story was all over the newspapers that there was uh, a fourth unidentified shot. This is what causes uh, Arlen Specter, uh, the chief investigator for the Warren Commission, to come up with the so-called single bullet theory, that the bullets fired, uh, that bullet obviously no longer counts, the bullets fired uh, hit both Kennedy uh, and Connolly. Connolly, by the way, denied that to his grave, uh, and um, uh, the, the single bullet theory now has pretty much been demolished. I think there were probably as many as four shooters, uh, one from the so-called Grassy Knoll. There are two witnesses who work for the railroad. They're in the railroad tower. They see a man uh, drive up in the Plymouth station wagon, take a gun out of a rifle bag, they actually see him shoot. They see a puff of smoke. Uh, they told all of this to the Dallas police. Uh, evidently, that information never made it to the Warren Commission, or perhaps it did. Uh, <laughs> I also think that there is a, a shooter in the sewer grate. Johnny Roselli, who is a very well-known gangster, claims that he was that shooter. It's possible. I think the shooter on the grassy knoll on the fence line, where multiple people uh, that day say they see a puff of smoke uh, 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 is uh, actually a Corsican imported by the mob uh, specifically for the hit. Uh, Malcolm Wallace is the shooter from the sixth floor. Uh, so the CIA has their shooter. The mob has their shooter. Lyndon Johnson has their shooter. I think it's highly likely that there's also a shooter in the Dow Text building, which is right next to the Texas School Book Depository building. So uh, that kind of sets the scene. Now, if you listen to the recordings uh, of uh, Lyndon Johnson, the phone recordings, in which he's talking to Hoover after uh, the murder, uh, Hoover says, uh, Mr. President, we've reached, uh, we've gotten intelligence that the Russians have conducted their own investigation into the Kennedy murder, and they have determined who did it. And Johnson said, really, who was it? And Hoover says, well, they say it was you. <laughs> we, we also know that, uh, and it's in her memoirs, Jacqueline Kennedy, uh, who uh, obviously had a great affinity for the French, 
I had received a report from French intelligence. Uh, this book, Farewell to America, was actually published in book form, can still be found, also concluded uh, that Lyndon Johnson uh, was the perp. Now, interestingly enough, uh, many of you may have seen the famous um, uh, scene uh, where uh, Lyndon Johnson is sworn in on Air Force One. Uh, Jacqueline Kennedy, her dress still splattered with blood, is standing next to him. Note that broad grin on, Lind on Lady Bird Johnson's face. She's very happy. The point, of course, is that there is no swearing-in ceremony, completely unnecessary. Uh, upon the declaration of death by the president, the vice president is automatically president of the United States with full powers. So Johnson staged that for two reasons. First of all, he calls Robert Kennedy, who he despises, uh, and he says, Bobby, I'm going to take the oath. Look up the oath for me. He's twisting the knife in Robert Kennedy. Uh, he also is seen famously winking uh, at a Texas segregationist co uh, congressman who is a crony of his. And the judge who swears him in uh, is a state judge who the Kennedys have refused to appoint to the federal bench. She is appointed to the federal bench shortly thereafter. So the, that scene uh, is completely uh, unnecessary. Uh, it is staged to give Johnson the imprimatur uh, of Jacqueline Kennedy, who's clearly uh, in shock. As I'm sure many of you have read, uh, they ask her if she wants to change her clothes, and she says, no, I want them to see what they have done. Uh, Johnson's greatest fear was that Robert Kennedy would see through this. Uh, indeed, Kennedy, uh, who's the, the Attorney General, uh, summons his John McCone, the head of the CIA, to his home in Hickory Hill outside of Washington and asks him point blank, did your guys do this? And McCone denies it. He's lying. Uh, it, it is, uh, it, it is uh, absolutely uh, fascinating uh, that Johnson uh, was able to really mobilize the FBI for a, a complete cover-up. One final coda, and then we'll go to your questions. Very recently, you may have seen uh, that a Watergate tape, which you've never heard of before, one of the White House tapes uh, in the early days of the Watergate scandal, uh, has recently been uncovered, and actually Tucker Carlson played it online after I wrote an article about it, it was covered also in Politico, where Richard Nixon is talking to uh, Richard Helms, the head of the CIA, uh, and he's essentially uh, trying to pressure him, and he says, you know, things could get really bad here, speaking of Watergate. Uh, and there's been a lot of dirty business over there uh, that you know and I know needed to be done, uh, and I've defended it when I needed to, and God knows I've lied enough times to cover up for you boys, uh, but if things get really bad, you can count on me. I mean, let me just put it to you this way. I know who shot John. There it is, wow. right there. Uh, that, that did get reported very recently uh, by Fox and also by Politico. Wow. So motive, means, opportunity, uh, fingerprint evidence, eyewitness evidence, Deep Texas politics, I think, explains uh, my belief uh, that Lyndon Johnson was at the helm uh, of a conspiracy to murder John F. Kennedy. Uh, everybody else involved has their own motive, as I have outlined. Each of them have a unique relationship uh, with LBJ. What does it have to do with today? Well, several things. First of all, I honestly think that this is the beginning of the control of our government by an unelected elite. Dwight Eisenhower warned us about this. This is the military-industrial complex he warned us about. You can call it the deep state, you can call it whatever you want, but there is in our government uh, and in, in private industry uh, those embedded in the intelligence agencies, those embedded uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the State Department, those embedded uh, in our law enforcement agencies, those in the think tanks, those in the defense industry that are a permanent establishment. 
uh, and they had multiple motives, which I've laid out tonight, for the murder of John Kennedy. I also think they are responsible for taking Richard Nixon down in the silent coup of Watergate. More very recently, uh, documents have been de uh, declassified that tell us that not only did the Central Intelligence Agency know about the plan to break into the Watergate, but they had infiltrated the burglar team. At least four of the eight Watergate burglars are still on the payroll of the CIA, reporting to their <laughs> handlers. And are you ready for this, folks? Four of them are on the ground in Dealey Plaza on November 22, 1963. Wow. E. Howard Hunt, the famous CIA operative, the most famous of the Watergate burglars, says on his deathbed uh, that, uh, yes, he was on the ground in Dallas, uh, but he says, I was a backbencher because LBJ was running the show. Uh, this was told to me by St. John Hunt, uh, his son, who uh, he and I co-authored a book called The Bush Crime Family. You might want to <laughs> check that out as well. <laughs> you got one on the Clintons too, right? I did. So, uh, look, I also think in the same, this same unelected elite, the same deep state, which is what we call them today, are responsible not only for, re for the removal of Nixon, uh, but also for the attempted assassination uh, of President uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, my next book will be uh, about that attempted assassination. Let me just tell you quickly what I've learned. Uh, John Hinckley was uh, convicted of the attempted murder of John F. Kennedy. Uh, he fired four bullets. He was in a crouching position, uh, so he shot from below. All four of those bullets are accounted for, but none of them hit Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was hit from behind and above. Uh, uh, Judy Woodruff, then with NBC, reported seeing a man on a balcony above the entrance of the Hilton Hotel, who she said appeared to be holding a weapon. Uh, when, uh, when Reagan is rushed uh, to George Washington University Hospital, first of all, there's something interesting. James Brady, his press secretary, who I knew well, who was shot in the head, got to GW Hospital 15 minutes before the President of the United States which means that there was, a, according to my sources, an argument among the Secret Service whether to take Reagan to Bethesda Medical Center or George Washington Hospital. The hospital at GW was closer. That's where he ultimately went. When he got there, uh, they had detected uh, an entry uh, and blood. He was spitting up blood, but the x-rays revealed no bullet. They could find no bullet in, in Reagan. They were preparing to sew him back up, which would have sealed his fate. And finally, one of the surgeons said, this doesn't seem right. They opened him up a bit wider. The doctor actually put his hand inside Reagan's cavity, and he came up with a projectile the size of a dime, which is called a flechette. Uh, if you ever watch the church committee hearings, there's a full explanation of the weapon that is used to fire the flechette. It is noiseless. Uh, it, it is uh, lethal, it is often coated uh, with poison. It is, was designed specifically for the purposes of assassination. So um, the results of the Kennedy, uh, pardon me, the results of the Reagan assassination have never been made public. But the backdrop was that there was a, a fight going on between Secretary of State Alexander Haig and Vice President George H.W. Bush over who would control government in the event of an emergency. Uh, there was a, a, a document on Reagan's desk which he had not signed prior to the assassination attempt. John Hinckley Sr. Uh, is not only a friend of the Bush family, but as I have now learned, Zapata Oil, which is long thought to be a CIA front, bailed out Hinckley's Vanderbilt Energy 10 years before. So there's a close relationship between the Hinckleys uh, and the Bushes. Uh, I've just given you kind of the, 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 the top lines there. This will be my next book. Uh, and then, of course, uh, they tried to remove Reagan under Iran-Contra, which was really uh, run by Vice President George Bush. I really don't believe Reagan knew about the idea of trading arms for hostages. 
he said he didn't. Uh, actually, that he took responsibility, but he said he was not informed. Uh, these are the same people who pulled the Russian collusion hoax. These are the same people who staged the two phony Ukrainian uh, impeachments. Uh, this is the this is uh, the deep state. Uh, they right now have one very important imperative: to stop Donald J. Trump from returning to office and cleaning house. Yeah. There's nothing new under the sun. It's the same operation, which is why I, I would encourage everybody tonight. Uh, by the way, I don't know if you all think the way I think, but listening to Roger talk about U.S. history. I like history. I don't know if anybody else likes history, but uh, my goodness, Roger. I mean, not only does Roger know U.S. history, but Roger has helped shape United States history over the last uh, 50 years or so. And so...